Special Counsel Jack Smith, Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, Fulton County District Attorney, Fawny Willis. Big updates in each of these matters led by these prosecutors. First, it's Special Counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation into Donald Trump's theft of thousands of government records and obstruction of justice. We learned about an audio recording. Lordy, there are recordings of Donald Trump. These recordings are now in Jack Smith's possession. And in these recordings, Donald Trump purportedly brags about having a classified document about military plans in Iran. Where is this document that Trump was referencing? Trump failed to turn over that documents, that document in response to a subpoena we are learning. And we are also learning that special counsel Jack Smith is heavily focused on Donald Trump's potential tampering with surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago. This as Donald Trump's lawyers are accusing each other of being snitches. Second, updates in the Manhattan District Attorney criminal case against Donald Trump for falsifying business records. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has filed an opposition in federal court to Donald Trump's attempt to remove the case from state court to New York federal court. It is a motion for remand. And Trump does not want to be in front of that state court judge Juan Morshan, that's for sure, because in addition to filing the removal motion, which happened around last month, this week he filed a new motion, one to recuse or to try to disqualify Judge Juan Morshan. We will talk about that. Third, we go south to Fulton County, Georgia, where we learn Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis is focusing on Donald Trump's criminal conduct, not just in Georgia, but also in other states. Why? I've got one word for you. Rico, Rico, Rico Suave. Rico charges against Donald Trump, we believe, are being pursued by District Attorney Fawny Willis. And as part of demonstrating that conspiracy uh, that Donald Trump was engaged in, she's focused on his conspiracy in other states to commit crimes. Finally, can't have a legal AF without updating you on what's going on with MAGA Republican George Santos, who was criminally indicted by the Department of Justice out of the Eastern District of New York Division. The federal magistrate judge in the Eastern District Federal Court gave George Santos until Monday after his lawyer begged for an extension to respond to the request by the media to release the names of individuals who posted $500,000 in bail for him whose names, for reasons that still aren't very clear to me, are currently being kept a secret. Release those names. And release Michael Popak. Michael Popak from <laughs> Legal AF. I'm Ben Micellis. A pleasure to be here with all the Legal AFers and with you, Michael Popak. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing great, Ben. You know, there's a that rundown you just gave, there's a reason that Trump's closest advisors have told him to be prepared mentally, emotionally, physically, if he can, and financially, if he can, for indictments coming out of Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis, and maybe Alvin Bragg again over this summer. They've told him that. He's got to be prepared for it because it is happening. And people that think, well, they're just blowing smoke and sunshine over there on the Midas Touch Network. Remember, 
We said the Alvin Bragg thing would come down. We were just off by about two weeks, but we got the month right. And we're going to get the month right and the summer right for indictments against Donald Trump. Whether it matters to the MAGA electorate, that's probably doesn't matter. They're okay with him being multiply convicted, multiply indicted, multiply uh, impeached, and a judge to be a sex abuser. That doesn't seem to move the needle for them. But for the rest of America and independents and women, I think it makes a major difference in the general election. And that's why we're here covering those factual legal political developments so people can make their right decision in the polls. Let's talk high-level timeline right now before getting into the updates on special counsel Jack Smith. Remember, Donald Trump leaves the White House January of 2021, and he steals all of these records. By the time the National Archives realizes that he stole all of these records, it is around May of 2021. They send a letter to Donald Trump saying, hey, did you just like steal thousands of records, including classified records and sensitive compartmented information. They send that letter around May 9th of 2021. And then around May uh, 11th of 2021, or shortly thereafter, there's that video of Donald Trump leaving Florida in a private jet with staff members who are carrying boxes and they are bringing it to Bedminster. That's going to become important with some of the updates we're going to be talking about uh, later in this episode. Then throughout that remainder of 2021, the National Archives is saying, you need to return these records. Donald Trump is saying, I don't have these records. Then you go to 2022. Finally, January of 2022, Donald Trump is like, okay, I found some things, but this is all that I have. I'm going to return it. I got 15 boxes. Donald Trump returns 15 boxes, lots of newspaper clippings. But when the National Archives opens this in January of 2022, they like open up the newspaper clippings. They go, what? There's classified material in here. There's sensitive compartmented information in here. There's information in here that needs to be viewed in SCIFs. It's so highly sensitive. Sensitive compartmented information facilities. So then what does the National Archives do? They have no choice but to refer this over to the Department of Justice. They then conduct an investigation as well, and they start asking Donald Trump and his lawyers like Evan Corcoran what's going on. And then Donald Trump and Donald Trump's lawyers say, we've returned everything. Everything's in the 15 boxes. We don't have anything else. So what finally has to happen? The Department of Justice has to issue a subpoena in May of 2022. They send this subpoena to uh, Donald Trump, um, and they say, please return any other documents that you have, classified records, sensitive compartmented information, top secret information. You then have Donald Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, who becomes the lawyer who leads the search, and his job is to try to search around in Mar-a-Lago, and he seems to have tried to take that job seriously, but we are learning that Donald Trump may have been playing Evan Corcoran with some of his own aides, someone by the name of Walt Nauta who we'll discuss more in this episode, who, while Evan Corcoran was trying to conduct the search for classified material, kind of right out of, you know, one of these, uh, like, uh, kind of comedic sketches, although it's not funny because of the dangerous ramifications, you'd have, like, Corcoran go downstairs in the storage room to count, and then you'd have Walt Nauta, like, take the boxes and then move them back to Trump's office and kind of keep hiding it while these searches were taking place. Eventually, Evan Corcoran invites over the Department of Justice 
uh, top counterintelligence official, somebody named, by the name of Jay Platt, to show up at Mar-a-Lago on June 3rd of 2022, the day before now we learn through some of these surveillance footage, the special counsel Jack Smith had Walt Nauta and a maintenance official by the name of Carlos de Oliveria were moving boxes around in Mar-a-Lago um, and kind of shifting where the boxes were located um, that had classified material in them before the DOJ shows up uh, on June 3rd as part of uh, the response to the subpoena that they issued back in May. Um, Evan Corcoran is there with Christina Bob. They sign an attestation saying that these are all of the records. They put them in a red weld folder, about 38 documents. They say, this is it. We have nothing else. Shortly thereafter, the DOJ did something very, very smart. They issued another subpoena for Donald Trump's surveillance footage. That starts freaking everybody out at Mar-a-Lago, including that maintenance worker, Carlos de Oliveria, who then reaches out to somebody by the name of Yusil Tavares, the IT worker at Mar-a-Lago, who deals with this surveillance footage, who's now gone before the grand jury asking, hey, how does this surveillance footage work like? What can they capture on those footage? And are we really going to give this footage? over to the Department of Justice. Then the Department of Justice learns that Donald Trump has not turned over all of the records. Uh, they file for a search warrant on August 5th of 2022 that a magistrate judge signs on August 5th. On August 8th, they execute the search warrant. They find thousands of government records, including over a hundred additional classified records and many, many, many classified folders that are actually empty as well. Next up, Donald Trump files that motion uh, with Judge Eileen Cannon that delays the process that we talked ad nauseum about here. Um, and then you fast forward a little bit, the DOJ wins that battle. Special Counsel Jack Smith gets appointed in November of 2022. So about six months ago or so, Special Counsel Jack Smith's been investigating everything since then, believes also there's been obstructive conduct since the search on August 8th of 2022. I want to give you that framework because a lot of these things that have been uncovered, like a lot of that, a lot of the things we've been talking about all have happened in under a year, right? And special counsel Jack Smith's been appointed. We're talking about a six-month period where a lot of these discoveries have been made. So with that time frame in mind, because I will, it's important that we go back and situate everybody on what's going on here. There's a lot that's happened. Uh, Popak, give us some of the updates that we're now yeah. learning this week. Yeah, that's a great framework. It's it's funny. I uh, you and I talk a lot before we get onto the show, but we didn't talk about one particular thing that I had come across and read. I'll probably end up doing a hot take on it. It's um, there's a draft prosecution memo that's been prepared by former prosecutors who are now in private practice, Norm Eisen, Daniel Perry, and others. And they really lay out in 150 pages exactly what the ultimate prosecution memo. What, what they would think Jack Smith's would look like back to Merrick Garland, laying out both the chronology that you just put down here for our listeners and followers, almost to a T, and then matching it with about four major crimes that they think would be charged 
uh, by uh, Jack Smith related to Mar-a-Lago. This is a Mar-a-Lago draft or model prosecution memo. And all of those things that, before I get to the kind of the new updates, all of those things that you just laid out, Ben, for those prosecutors, and of course they want they want that to get out to the public and to get over to Jack Smith, would violate at least four different major criminal statutes. One of them being, first of all, um, we talked about this before on Legal AF, mishandling of government documents, Espionage Act, 18 U.S.C. 793, little e, National Defense Information, or NDI, being the key driver of that statute, not the fact that it's classified or top secret. Remember, for everybody, there were, thir- on Ben's description, there were 13,000 pages of documents ultimately, that that Donald Trump did not turn over. Of that, we always focus on this 100 top secret classified, but there were another 12,900 that many of which went RNDI, National Defense Information, and that's what matters for the statute, not the other thing. Then the second crime that they think has been implicated is concealing government records willfully, 18 USC 2071. Third is obstruction, which is if you go back to Merrick Garland's press conference when he announced Jack Smith's appointment, he must have said obstruction about six times. Then, so obstruction is 18 USC 1519 in the criminal code. Criminal contempt, which we haven't talked too much about on the show, but is sort of what it sounds like. There is an order from a federal judge. It was a search warrant. That is an order. There have been other turnover orders subsequent to that by the chief judge of the Uh, D.C. Circuit Court overseeing all things grand jury, once Beryl Howell, now uh, Jeb Boesberg. Not doing what you've been told to do under a federal order by a judge is criminal contempt uh, under 18 U.S.C. 402. And then the catch-all that every government prosecutor uses in every case I've ever been involved with as a defense lawyer is false statement to a federal official or authority which is 18 U.S.C. 1001. So when Trump or Corcoran make statements to Jay Bratt about, no, there's not 13,000 other or 100 100 top secret classified documents next door in the desk drawer of Donald Trump, it's just these 34 in an envelope, that is potentially a lie and a 1001 criminal violation, which I'm sure they've told Evan Corcoran. Those are the crimes. The new information is we've got the convergence of focus on video testimony, video evidence, sorry, video evidence, and then the movement of boxes in and out of the storage room and the fact that Donald Trump intentionally misled his lawyer, Evan Corcoran, and Christina Bob by extension by telling them directly that all of the documents from the White House that were implicated by the National Archive and the ultimate subpoena and then search warrant were behind one door of one room called a storage room at Mar-a-Lago. A, that turns out not to be true because right next door in the office or wherever the office is located at Mar-a-Lago, in a desk drawer and in other places, were these top secret and classified and other documents. So he misled his lawyer to then mislead the government Jay Bratt in the meeting on June 2nd and others because 
It's not, it's not that he wanted to give his lawyer plausible deniability. He lied to Evan Corcoran. Evan Corcoran has now basically said that. I did not know there were documents in any other place. Now, Evan Corcoran's got his own problem because you've got to do due diligence and you've got to confirm things before you sign or have Christina Bob sign and say under penalty of perjury, this is after a diligent search, all of the documents that exist. That wasn't true. It's hard to blame your client. Oh, you Oh, my diligent search was in one room that Walt Nauta pointed me to and wanted to sit on me while I did the review. And I just took my client at his word. I'm not sure that's good enough. One of the reasons I don't think Evan Corcoran is in the case anymore and had to depart and has gone into the grand jury stripped of attorney client privilege. So you have the, and then you have the movement on the video cameras because, you know, any master criminal like Donald Trump always forgets about his own video surveillance equipment sitting out in front of that same set of doors. And on it, because they subpoenaed that information, the government from the Trump organization, they saw two things. Well, one thing they saw, one thing they didn't see. The one thing they saw was movement of boxes on date stamps that show that before the meeting with Jay, Jay Bratt on June 2nd and after, Donald Trump was having Walt now to move boxes in and out of that room, even before Evan Corcoran could go do a search, go put a few more boxes in there, take a few more out. And then, okay, Evan, go in. They're all in there now. And then after he after he spoke, they took it back out again. That's what they saw in the video. What they didn't see on the video was missing video. There was missing video that they're trying to get to the bottom of with the uh, with the with the security company that 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 uh, runs these things, along with Matt Calamari and Matt Calamari Jr., who were responsible for security ultimately of the Trump Organization, and those two have gone in, of course, and testified. So then you got the Bedminster, the maintenance worker, who's already been identified by name by the New York Times. He's already gone in with his lawyer a couple of times. It's a, never a great sign for Donald Trump when your maintenance worker has a criminal defense lawyer, um, and he's cooperating. He's fully cooperating with the government in every way, shape, and form, and just totally opening the books. He's got a he's got photographs of the room. He he talked about loading the the SUV that Walt Nauta drove from from Florida to, to New Jersey, filled with filled with boxes. And then you know I've I've said on this podcast and in my own hot takes, there's going to be a search warrant that's going to be issued or a subpoena first for Bedminster. People here and with what we do, I've been amazed that as of right now, the government has been taking Donald Trump and his lawyers at their word about the search at Bedminster, especially with Tim Parlatori going on CNN saying, I couldn't properly search Bedminster. And it's the reason I'm departing because Trump's lawyer, Boris Epstein, has gotten in my way and interfered with my search. I don't know how that didn't immediately lead uh, Jack Smith's team to go get a subpoena slash search warrant based on that testimony alone. But I think we're going to see those developments in, in uh, uh, coming up soon. Ben, did I leave anything out between the video and the and the and the new? I want you to talk about the recording that was part oh, of yeah. this right. July meeting, but but, but a July twenty twenty one meeting. Mm-hmm. But before at Bedminster, but before going there, here's the thing I want everyone to remember about Bedminster, though. Um, Jack Smith basically cut a deal with the lawyer, Tom, uh, Tim Parlatori, Jim Trustee, and some of the others, that those lawyers, who, by the way, Parlatori and Trustee um, have, of all of the lawyers on Trump's teams, have pretty good reputations before representing Donald Trump in the legal community. 
That's why Tim Parlatori just left and resigned about two, three weeks ago for the reasons that you just stated when he said his searches of Bedminster were being obstructed. Those searches were not just, hey, hey, hey I'm going to do this search because Donald Trump wants me to. Quite the opposite. Special counsel Jack Smith had him do the searches. Same thing. Attestation under penalty of perjury, where if the lawyer's attestations were false, if they obstructed justice, it would just be a new count. It would be a new charge where they could potentially face 20 years in prison if they lie. So when I like to think about the toolkit of a prosecutor, you know, one way to give an example is that, you know, they have the hammer which is executing a search warrant, FBI agents show up, knock down the door and conduct uh, a very invasive search, like, you know, with a search warrant, like what took place on August 8th of 2022 at Mar-a-Lago. But there are other tools in the toolkit. Sometimes you basically use a surgical scalpel because at the end of the day, the goal is to investigate the crime. The search warrant is just one tool to investigate the crime. And perhaps if you conducted two search warrants, one at Bedminster, one at Mar-a-Lago, you would be losing all additional sources of information that could potentially shut down because then both facilities would be would be locked down. I think special counsel Jack Smith has more people on the inside than we're currently aware of, that he knows what's going on at Bedminster and in the other properties, that it would be Donald Trump's reflexive criminality after the August 8th search warrant at Mar-a-Lago to then try to hide documents and move documents into a place like Bedminster or Trump Tower. And I think special counsel Jack Smith has got that. And, and, and remember, the national security apparatus in the United States did a security assess assessment. These documents are all traceable. So we know what documents are missing at this point. And if they are missing, I think special counsel Jack Smith at this point pretty much knows where they are. But the other big update, you know, and I think it's helpful that I set out that framework in the beginning, and you could tell us a little bit about it, Michael Popak, is that in July of 2021, there was this meeting that was held between Donald Trump, some of Donald Trump's aides, and two people who were ghostwriting a book for Mark Meadows. Setting the stage, I'll, I'll toss it back to you. Yeah, that's great. So the um, what we didn't know is that uh, Trump would often meet with um, people like Mark Meadows, the ghostwriter for Mark Meadows' memoirs. Back when Mark Meadows thought he uh, would be a popular novelist or author, um, instead of being a potential criminal defendant, you know, when people didn't know he was burning documents in the White House fireplace, they had a meeting, and they and at that meeting was a an aide who recorded what happened at these meetings, I guess for posterity and for notes, and so they could help write the Mark Meadows book. And this is on the heels of Donald Trump always was incensed that then Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, or the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, uh, Chairman, General Milley, had gone out and, and to try to make the rest of the world feel more comfortable about this madman in the bunker like Hitler in the final waning days of the administration having his finger on the nuclear button. He uh, he called his counterpart, for instance, in uh, China to tell him, don't worry, we're not going to let this guy start World War III, basically. 
And he said other things publicly about um, what you would normally not do. When I originally read them, I'm like, wow, the commander in chief is being challenged publicly by under a civilian command structure by his chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And in any other world, you'd be like, that could be that you know, that could be treason on the part of that guy. But we all uh, of, the, of the general. But in, in this case, because the rest of the world and thinking Americans were really worried about what Donald Trump would do. We wouldn't put it past them starting a war in order to stay in office or or get reelected or any of those other things. So he he hated that, Donald Trump. And he hated the press and the media attention that Millie was getting. And so apparently in and around this time, in, uh, in about March of um, uh, 2021, he said, um, Millie... Uh, who he had who, who he had called an effing idiot at Mar-a-Lago during a, a rant of his, um, said to this small group of people, including the aide and Mark Meadows, um, I'm not the warmonger. Millie's the more warmonger. And I have a document. It's classified. Really can't show it to you. But I have a document where he had war plans to go after Iran. See, he's the madman, not me. Well, there's a number of problems with that. First of all, if that document really exists, and let's put a pin in that for a moment, let's assume Donald, here, here's a number of problems for Donald Trump's defense of the Mar-a-Lago case. One, he knew his documents so well, the, these haphazardly packed boxes that just happened to show up at, from the White House, that he actually had an inventory in his head that he knew about that document. So he could go, in order, he's telling his aide, go get me a Coke. And while you get it, get that Millie document that I have that says he was gonna go for a war plan with Iran. Really, you know your documents that well? There's like an inventory? I thought there were thousands of them and you didn't know what was in those boxes. So that's the first problem. Second problem is that this demonstrates that he knew that things were classified and that they hadn't been magically, telepathically declassified on, on January 19th when he left office or in the last waning days. So you got that problem. Three, he, he sort of indicates that he knows he can't show people these things because he's like, well, they're classified. And I didn't get a chance. They're not declassified. Okay, that's a problem. And it completely blows apart all of the defenses that trustee and at the time parlatore were so delicately crafting uh, that got blown apart at the CNN town hall. Again, the gift that keeps on giving appears to be that CNN town hall now because they've all known about this this recording for quite some time. It's early as March. They've known about this recording, the lawyers for Donald Trump. And they were on pins and needles, apparently, when he went in front of in May at the CNN event. And he used a very interesting phrase that I'm sure all of the investigators and prosecutors for Donald, uh, for uh, Jack Smith, for Donald Trump were, were circling, which was he said that uh, he has, when they asked him, has he shown documents to people? He said, not really. Not really, not no, not really, but I could have. And they all cringed, apparently, uh, so reporting is reporting, because they know about the March recording, and they've been waiting for um, Jack Smith to strategically leak it to the media, which he's now done as part of the prosecution team that it exists. But then there's a bigger problem. Besides the fact it blows away the whole, he overpacked, he didn't pack his own boxes, or he overpacked the boxes and didn't know what was in them, and he didn't know there was classified, or he declassified everything. All that tape does is destroy almost every one of those defenses that he could possibly have. Um, he doesn't have any other defenses. You know, a reliance on attorneys doesn't work because he's never relied on his attorneys. They told him 
he, that he didn't declassify. Here's how you declassify. There's memos about classification that he was given before he left the White House that he ignored. He, he tried to lie to his lawyers. Every lawyer he's ever had about Mar-a-Lago, he has lied to from the very beginning when they initially started, quote unquote, negotiating with the National Archive about the return of documents in exchange transactionally. If you give me the Russia interference documents from 2016, I'll give you everything that I'm required to return. Like no, that's not. And he lied to his lawyer at that time, one that we haven't even talked about yet, and told that person to tell the National Archive that all the documents have been returned when there were thirteen thousand sitting over in Mar-a-Lago. Every remember, every lawyer he's ever had about Mar-a-Lago and beyond, he has lied to. Period. And that is the evidence that would go into the prosecution memo of of uh, Jack Smith. The other problem is, does the document even exist? He's either a liar and a and a and a fabulist who makes stuff up um, and said it to a group of people, which is you know you can believe that, or he has the document, but he they can't locate it. How do we know this? Because now there's reporting that in March, March was a big month. We we didn't know it at the time because a lot of this didn't come out, and so Ben, you and I couldn't report on it. But March was an, it was an incredible month for Jack Smith between the grand juries and everything else. One thing that we didn't know about is that a new subpoena got issued by Jack Smith through the uh, Jeb Bosberg, the, uh, the, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, asking specifically Based on this, uh, based on uh, new reporting, uh, and uh, and the and the tape that has been out with the government since March, they had a subpoena that said, "Give us everything that you have in your possession about a invasion plan or map related to Iran and Milly. What do you got?" Which goes, which which would capture this document if it exists, and the, and the lawyers for Donald Trump, including at the time Tim Parlatori, said, uh, "We got a couple of things about Iran, but we don't seem to have that particular document." So either it is lost, it is stolen and secreted, which goes to the government's point: you can't trust Donald Trump. Look what he's done. He can't. We can't even find it. It was in one of those empty envelopes, uh, classified folders. Can't find it, or he made it up. He just. He just, sorry, I just, beat me out on that one. He just made it up, right, to get back at Millie to a small group of people that he never thought would see the light of day. They're both bad. They both show criminal intent. But but one of them is just, so let me ask you, Ben, you think that document exists? Yeah, three points and I'll close the loop here. Number one, yeah. I think the document does exist because uh, I don't think special counsel Jack Smith would subpoena for the very specific document if it didn't exist. Remember, the DOJ is working closely with the national security advisors to know what documents are missing. So, And then also we've learned from the recent reporting that special counsel Jack Smith has also been cooperating with uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, or I should rephrase it the other way, that chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, is cooperating against Donald Trump with special counsel Jack Smith. And I think we know a little more about the document too, um, that provides a little layer of specificity, that it was actually created before Mark Milley became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as well, which is why it's not actually even a, a Mark Milley related document. So that's one point I want to make. The next point I want to make is the incident also shows how transactional Trump is with the documents. You could imagine 
That one was recorded by his aide, Margot Martin, someone who worked for him at the White House um, and worked with him after the White House. She was the one who recorded it. So there's probably tons of meetings that aren't recording. You could pretty much imagine almost at every meeting him saying and bragging about the classified records. Yes, that's the malignant narcissist he has. And that's why he wants to have these records in the first place. Finally, my theory is special counsel Jack Smith was not the one who selectively leaked this story to CNN. I think it was Tim Parlatori who selectively leaked it to CNN. Tim Parlatori, who resigned from Donald Trump's legal team, who would know this, who knew about the obstruction that was taking place at Bedminster. Um, Tim Parlatori had what was been referred to as a murder-suicide pact with Donald Trump's other lawyer, Jim Trusty, that they would both leave together. Trusty is still in there. I think this was a move by Parlatori to kind of let the other lawyers know that you better get out of this thing because you know you're about to get in trouble um, and to let the world know that Parlatori was right for getting out when he did. He, to me, has the motive to do that. Did, uh, did I, uh, I don't want to cut off your points. Did you have another point? I want to talk about Parlatori for a minute. Talk about Parlatori, but All first, right. let's make a quick break. Oh, this is one of our favorite new partners, Short Form. Short Form isn't just some run-of-the-mill product. This is truly amazing. At its core, short form is condensed books. Look, we're all incredibly busy and reading an entire book, that's challenging in 2023. Well, with everything else going on in our lives, I mean, I read a lot to prepare for Legal AF in my law career, but that's exactly why short form is great for so many people like you and me. First, I love the condensed information. Short form provides the most important information about what you're reading so you don't have to worry about missing out on any key information. Also, after a chapter or an idea is presented, they'll have these journaling moments where they'll ask you questions to make sure you're keeping yourself engaged. The combination of reading and reflecting, that keeps your mind sharp. And it's awesome. I love this app. And I'm so happy they're a sponsor of Legal AF. They have a great range of books like Kobe Bryant's The Mamba Mentality, which was a powerfully motivating read for me. The Power of Habit by Chris Duhigg, exploring how to develop and maintain positive habits. And Hyperfocus by Chris Bailey, which allowed me to learn to be more productive and creative. And so much more. Short Form has new books and articles every week. And if you're a subscriber of the Legal AF podcast, you'll get a free trial and an additional 25% discount on the annual subscription. Join Short Form through the link shortform.com slash Legal AF. That's a free trial and an additional 25% discount on the annual subscription of Shortform at shortform.com slash Legal AF. Welcome back to Legal AF. We are live. Popak, before we took that commercial break, yeah. you were getting worked up. You were cursing. You were, we had to, <laughs> we had to bleep you there for a moment. Beep. And so we just had to, we had to settle down a little bit. So tell yeah. me. You know what's <laughs> not short form? You and me. We're not short form. We're long form Legal AFers. And here we go. The, I, I agree with you that I think there's leaks going on at the um, Trump attorney, departing attorney level. But I also think there's a reason we've been... So that's one um, one stream of leaks that's coming out. But the other stream of leaks are strategic leaks by, by Jack Smith. People were, in the beginning, we would get a lot of flack like, or we'd see it in the tweets and social media. 
I don't think he's doing a darn thing. We're not hearing anything about these grand juries. What's going on? I want to hear more about what's going on in secret grand juries. And we were like, be patient. First of all, he's not a leaker. Um, But the reason we're hearing about it now is not because Jack Smith's lost control of his investigators and his lawyers and their, this is strategic. This is what prosecutors do when they want to put pressure both on the, on witnesses that have yet to be cooperative, like Walt Nauta, um, the personal valet who knows a lot, but has told Jack Smith, I'm not cooperating anymore unless I get an immunity deal. And they haven't yet given him the immunity deal if they're going to do that. I think they're going to they're going to do it ultimately. And it puts pressure on people like Donald Trump to let him know that they're coming for him, which of course they've always known, uh, and squeezing other witnesses that we haven't even talked about yet. Walt Nauta is a big problem, has a big problem, and Jack Smith wants to crack that nut to get everything out of him about Mar-a-Lago. I think they're going to make one more run at him, or they're just going to tell their lawyer, we're going to indict your guy. We're going to indict your guy because we don't think he's been honest and truthful based on the video evidence. We think he knew about his complicity with Donald Trump in moving these boxes. He knew why he was moving them. He knew he wasn't just a moving man, moving box. He knew he was doing it for a reason. He, because he offered to go, not offered, he was instructed to try to get into the room with Evan Corcoran when Evan Corcoran was searching through the documents. And Evan Corcoran was like, I barely have national security clearance. I'm not going to let you go look at the boxes. But that was Donald Trump wanting to put his guy in the room to make sure that Evan Corcoran didn't go astray and, and, and misleading. So there's culpability for Walt Nauta. And if he doesn't get onto the train, he's going to get run over it. Or as I like to say, this is a line of, of nails and Jack Smith is the hammer. Couldn't agree more with you there. Did you have a point on Tim Parlatore you also wanted to make or was it? No, more no, that was it. No, it was your point that, yes, I believe Tim Parlatore is leaking, but I think there's also strategic leaking by the prosecutor. I like it. Let's talk about another prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, some updates to report in the Manhattan Manhattan District Attorney criminal case against Donald Trump. You'll recall back at the end of March, Donald Trump was indicted on 34 separate felony counts for the falsification of business records relating to his hush money payments to an adult film star that he was trying to cover up in connection with the 2016 election. Uh, The criminal judge who was assigned to the case, a judge by the name of Judge Juan Mershon, Donald Trump does not want this judge presiding over this case. Uh, uh, Judge Juan Mershon presided over the other uh, Trump organization criminal case where Trump organization was convicted on 17 felony counts uh, for its uh, tax fraud and related crimes uh, earlier uh, or or several months back. It seems like a long time ago, but that was only, you know, a few months ago when, when, when that happened. So Donald Trump's done a few things. First, he's filed what's called a removal to try to get the case removed to federal court, saying that the conduct at issue involves his conduct while he was in office, his defenses involve um, defenses that he would be asserting that are federal in nature because he was in office at, at the time. So he says a federal court should be presiding over it. The case eventually got transferred to a federal judge named Judge Hellerstein, who actually has some experience with Donald Trump. It's not exactly a favorable judge to, for Donald Trump. In fact, 
I'd probably, if if I was representing Trump, which just induces vomit to even think about, I'd probably want to be in front of Judge Juan Mershon instead of Judge Hellerstein in federal court. So that move kind of backfired in any event. And I think recognizing that it backfired and that Donald Trump also thinks that he wants to now be in state court, but now he just doesn't want to be in front of Judge Juan Mershon. He filed a motion to recuse or to disqualify Judge Juan Mershon, saying that there are conflicts of interest there. But this is part of a pattern and practice of Donald Trump, as well as MAGA Republicans in general, essentially trying to weaponize the fact that judges who are pro-democracy take their ethical responsibilities very, very, very seriously. And so they try to exploit that because unlike a MAGA Republican judge, like a Clarence Thomas, for example, who just goes out and you know parties with and takes millions of dollars in gifts from people who go before him and whose wife you know uh, basically has a whole career based on you know the business relating to the supreme court you know pro democracy judges who care about the law even the smallest things sometimes they'll recuse themselves for and so this is all part of a plan of judge shopping and attacking the judiciary. I want you to talk more about it, but I wanted to make that broader point. I don't think Judge Juan Mershon will recuse himself here, but nonetheless, it is framed through Judge Juan Mershon is a good person who's pro-democracy, who cares about law and order. So exploit that by by putting their reputation into this, Popa. Let, let me pick up with the recusal disqualification, then I'll just touch briefly on the removal because we've done that before. We've seen a number of judges in the last few days actually talk about their appearance of impropriety or bias and then make a decision whether to stay in the case or go. We've got three examples right here, right? We got the, we won't, we're not going to spend too much time on it, but we got the judge down in Florida, North Florida federal case who's decided that because a distant relative had 30 shares of Disney stock, he was going to remove, he was going to disqualify himself or accuse himself and step out of the case of Ron DeSantis versus Disney or vice versa, Disney versus Ron DeSantis. Most, most people shook their heads because he wrote a scathing order on the way out, a very noisy departure. Like, why, why'd you pull out when some rel- distant relative have 30 shares? That doesn't sound like that's enough, uh, even under the federal standard. Then you had Judge Hellerstein, which we'll talk about in the removal. He figured out that back in um, 1990s, when he was, because he's in his late 70s, when he was a lawyer and a partner at a now um, a defunct law firm in New York, but that was very well considered called Struck, Struck and Levan, that he actually worked himself, not just the firm, on a matter involving the entity that owns Trump Tower. So he represented Donald Trump by extension by by it was called the, I think it's called Trump Fifth Avenue Holding Company. You know, lots of people, lots of lots of um, uh, lawyers in Manhattan have done work at one time or another. I know at least three of them for Donald Trump and his business affairs and business dealings um, when he was a, when he was a semi legitimate business person uh, subject to the fraud and civil fraud that's being brought against him by the New York Attorney General's office. And here you have. Um, oh, so so Hellerstein said, "I do not." He didn't. He didn't leave it to the parties. He said, "I don't see this at all as impacting my ability to be impartial or biased, uh, or to be not in, to be 
to be impartial and not biased. And I'm not getting out. Anybody want to say anything about it? Well, who would say anything about it? Donald Trump's not going to say anything about it. He represented Donald Trump. And the other side, Manhattan DA, I'm sure doesn't care. So you have that. Now here with Juan Mershon, we've done the reporting in the past. And I'm not making these numbers up just to minimize it. He gave a $30 donation to either Act Blue or Joe Biden directly at some point. Put aside his family issues, because nobody in, in the disqualification recusal analysis, what your loved one does for a living or in their spare time doesn't matter. Okay. Um, as long as you don't have that bias or or partisanship about you as a judge, doesn't really matter what your wife or daughter do in this case. So the in, so in order for Trump to win in his efforts to to uh, judge shop, assuming he doesn't get the case out of federal court, he's got to stay in the federal in the state court. He wants to get rid of Juan Mershon. Why? We've talked about it in the past. Why? Because Juan Mershon presided over the seventeen count jury conviction of the major Trump entities for tax fraud. Donald Trump's on the record as saying he didn't like the way that Juan Mershon handled Alan Weisselberg and the testimony against the Trump organization, forcing basically Weisselberg to make a decision in a day's time after he'd been given a considerable amount of time about whether to testify or not, and then telling him, you can go to Rikers Island, I don't really care. But you're going to either testify and cooperate or you're not. And I don't care which, but we start the trial on Monday. Well, Trump didn't like the way Mershon handled Weisselberg. And then, of course, uh, Mershon, in the one major role he had during the trial, was he, at the end, he fined the Trump organization entities $1.6 million. So they want to get rid of Mershon. The standard in New York, because it's different in every place, and I practice in New York, the standard in New York is similar. It's whether the judge and the judge himself or herself makes that initial call under a very liberal abuse of discretion standard, meaning it's very rarely, if ever, overturned at the higher levels of court. They have to make the decision that they can no longer be um, fair and impartial because of some significant conflict, and the other side has the burden of demonstrating that there is a substantial evidence of a significant conflict, they're never going to be able to do this here. The $30 donation, and and the courts are clear, the, the court decisions are clear, bad rulings that you got against you in a prior case or in this case is not bias, okay? You have to have more, and it's the burden is on them on Trump's lawyers, Necklace and and uh, Todd Blanche, to prove that there is a substantial evidence to support a significant conflict for this judge. What they want to do is try to embarrass the judge to step aside on his own, because there is case law in New York at the Court of Appeals level, which is the highest court in New York, that if you the judge shouldn't let it get that far. If the judge believes that there's an appearance of impropriety, he should step aside and let the chief administrative judge reassign the case. But I don't think the judge here is going to do that. He And this is also in a lot of states, but not in New York, unfortunately. I would have argued that they've waited too long to raise the issue because in Florida, where I also practice, you don't bring that, that motion within 10 days of you having knowledge of the issues that you think are grounds for the disqualification, you've waived. We're two months out from arraignment. 
they've known about that donation for a long, long time and anything else they're going to put together. Now, we don't have all of the ability to talk about the motion because it was filed under seal. It'll be unsealed soon. We'll get copies of it. But for right now, we're doing a little bit of shadow boxing based on a press release that the Trump organization put out or the Trump lawyers put out about it. At the end of the day, I do not believe that Judge that Judge Juan Marchand is going to let another judge handle this case. He's not going to find that there's an appearance of impropriety. It sets a terrible precedent every time a, a criminal defendant garden variety, doesn't like his judge, looks up his political background or record and just says, oh, you got to get out. He goes, all right, I'm getting out. He's not going to do it. This is criminal. And this is state. This isn't Florida federal about Disney. This is about due process and due process rights. So I think that loses. On the removal side, um, just to break out a little legal AF law school, the party that wants to drag it into federal court from state court, literally make a federal case out of it, files this, this notice of removal. They have to have grounds. The grounds here, the only there's only one ground that they could possibly do by arguing that Donald Trump is a federal officer at the time of the crime, at the time of the crime, or the crimes that are charged, or the actions that support the crimes, and in, 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 as a federal officer performing a federal officer function, he's being sued in state court. That's called office. That's called federal officer removal jurisdiction, and they, that's the only hook they have. And so Alvin Bragg did a great job in his motion for remand, which is what you do when you want to you want to keep it in state court. He said he's he's not a federal officer. First of all, the statutes and the law around the statutes says that presidents don't qualify as federal officer. That's interesting. And even if he was a federal officer, when the crimes that we're alleging, both federal election and state garden variety, run-of-the-mill business record fraud state of New York. That happened while he was a candidate, not when he was president. The fact that some of the book entries and some of the payments made back to Michael Cohen was when the guy won the office and was was sitting there doesn't mean it was a federal officer performing a federal function when he was covering up the Stormy Daniels affair. So not a federal officer. Even if he was a federal officer, he wasn't functioning as one. This was a private business matter. And my favorite part of the, of the papers of the motion for reband is when they used his, Donald Trump's own words against him and they found his tweets when he was still tweeting when Donald Trump said that the agreement between him and Stormy Daniels, the NDA, non-disclosure agreement, and all of that relationship was a, I'm not, this is, sounds like a pun, was a private affair, a private agreement between two parties right. You weren't president. It wasn't a presidential act to enter into this, this cover-up agreement with Stormy Daniels to pay her money. Your own words and, and hanging him on his own petard, which we've said, prosecutors are going to use the words of Donald Trump at every press conference, tweet, social truth, rally, campaign, whatever, interview against him in their filings. And it is persuasive. And I think this case with Hellerstein at the end of June is going to stay with Judge Mershon and Mershon is going to stay with the case. Just think how disgraceful this is. Re- remove the legal trappings just for a moment that Donald Trump's argument was that paying an adult film star hush money payments was a presidential act. And this is someone who large media networks normalize. This is someone who is the leader of the modern day Republican Party. That is not me being 
hyperbolic in saying, oh, that's what he says. He literally said it. That's his motion that paying an adult film star is a act of him in his official capacity as and the falsification of business records, part of his official capacity of being a president of the United States. It is so utterly disgraceful. But then we turn south to Fulton County, Georgia. There we expect indictments to uh, take place late July to early to mid-August. And don't take our word for it. Just take Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis's word for it. She's previously sent a letter to the Fulton County Sheriff's Department letting them know that they should be prepared for high-profile indictments in that July 31 to uh, August, a few weeks into August time period. Uh, Fulton County District Attorney Phony Willis has similarly sent correspondence to those working within her office, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, and the courthouse and to all of the judges, letting them know to prepare their dockets to try to hold remote hearings during that time period as well, so that they could be prepared for high-profile indictments that will be taking place in that time period. And now we learn about the expansive scope of this investigation focused on these other acts, criminal acts by Donald Trump and his top aides in other states, because part of showing this overall criminal conspiracy that also took place in Georgia, it had tentacles in all of these states. When you bring a RICO and racketeering charge, you show this common plan and scheme, and ultimately you're able to charge Donald Trump with the acts of those, even at the lower rungs of the common plan and scheme. And these RICO racketeering charges, that's a major powerful tool in mob investigations, mob mafia criminal prosecutions, because usually the mob boss isn't the person who actually does the hit, right? You know, usually the mob boss puts out the statement and then that gets trickled down to lieutenants. It gets trickled down to the individuals who actually do the hit. And how do you charge the mob boss with murder? Well, one of the ways is through the RICO racketeering criminal enterprise uh, type of charge. And that's what Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis is here. And if you look at that same structure, you start to think about Donald Trump at the top. You start thinking about people below that, like Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who wanted to seize voting machines. And when they couldn't do that, they then had criminal conspiracies to find kind of, I guess you call them Magadonians now. I guess that's what Donald Trump calls the cult, to find your Magadonian Republicans who are... Uh, who have clout in certain uh, red areas. Um, and so, for example, in Georgia, you had someone by the name of Kathy Latham, who was the chair of the Coffee County GOP, who allowed people in the Trump campaign to breach voting data to steal voters' data in the Coffee County elections office. So there was basically a robbery. There was a break-in that took place. And that didn't just happen in Coffee County that also took place in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Colorado. And there was also Donald Trump uh, had his people engaged in other criminal conduct in places like Arizona and New Mexico and Wisconsin. 
that also took place in Georgia and in other states. So you kind of put that all together as part of pleading your RICO and racketeering. I want to talk about that, but first, let's take our final break of today. Did you know that the best tasting honey on the planet comes from New Zealand? It's called Manuka honey. Manukura has absolutely mastered the art of beekeeping. Their super honey is always 100% raw and has a rich and creamy texture that's unlike anything you've ever tried before. It's a super honey because of its unique antioxidants and prebiotics, as well as a natural antibacterial compound called MGO that only comes from the nectar of this tea tree. I tried the 850 MGO rated Manakura honey from the bottle, and wow, it was better than I could have ever imagined. Not to mention that it contains nutrients that support optimal immune and digestive health. Every batch is 100% traceable with a unique QR code on every jar. You can verify potency and purity. You can even learn about the beekeeper that harvested your honey. I had my honey straight from the spoon and it was delicious by itself, but you can also add it to tea or coffee, pancakes, yogurt, salad dressing, ice cream, whatever you like. The creamy caramel texture melts in your mouth and it's unlike anything I've ever tried. Manakura. It's savory, it's delicious, and truly the best honey I've ever had in my life. Manakura's honey is available in a range of easy-to-use formats, including squeeze bottles and compostable honey sticks, so you can eat it straight or add to your favorite foods and drinks. If you head to manakura.com slash legalaf or use code legalaf, you'll automatically get a free pack of honey sticks with your order, a $15 value. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash legalaf or use code legalaf to get a free pack of compostable honey sticks with your order. You haven't tasted or seen honey like this before, so indulge and try some honey with superpowers with Manakura. Our next sponsor this week is Highland Titles. At HighlandTitles.com, you can become a Lord or Lady of Glencoe for less than $50. Now, thanks to a quirk in Scottish law, you can buy one square foot of land in Scotland as a gift. Highland Titles has been selling these plots of land for 16 years and have more than over 300,000 happy customers. They use their profits to manage the land as a nature reserve. And the Highland Titles Nature Reserve near Glencoe is one of the most popular nature reserves in Scotland. People travel from all over the world to find their very own plot of land. You get a personalized luxury gift pack and help conserve the beautiful Scottish Highlands at the same time. Now, Highland Titles literally spread ownership of the land amongst thousands of people. It makes it impossible for developers like mm, Donald Trump to turn the landscape into a golf course. It's a really cool gift that makes land ownership a possibility for everyone. You can use the discount code LEGALAF to get 20% off at highlandtitles.com. With your purchase, you get a fully personalized, instantly available digital download with access to a dashboard where you can check out the webcams and the exact distance you are from your plot at any time. Just head to highlandtitles.com and use code LEGALAF to get 20% off at checkout. And now back to the video. We are back live on Legal AF. Rico, Rico, Rico Suave in, in Georgia. Tell us more, Popak, about what's yeah. going on. And if I call you honey, it's because I'm referring to one of our sponsors. But I also like you. <laughs> on the uh, Rico, which we talk a lot about, the the people wonder, what has Fawny Wallace been doing since, um, since uh, several months ago when she said indictments were imminent? Let's get off her back for a minute. The The process of taking the special purpose grand jury report, which went on for a seven-month process, 
of a special purpose grand jury to develop facts and evidence and to get from them some recommendations about indictments. It's not the same thing as going in loaded for bear, loaded for Trump in front of a real grand jury, an indicting grand jury, in which you present not just that evidence, She's not limited to what was done and developed factually in front of that jury with all those 70 witnesses and documents. She's continued to expand her probe, and it's very far-reaching at this point, pardon me, with new evidence that she's developed. And then she will go in at the end of July or the beginning of August presenting really two different work streams of evidence and witnesses and testimony and documents to the grand jury, the indicting grand jury. One of it will be what came out of the special purpose grand jury, she has that under her arm. The other will be witnesses that she brings in new, and then an expansion of her case. She's got kind of the individual crimes, I think, down pretty solidly, but connecting them all to a RICO, Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organization Act under Georgia law, not federal, under Georgia law, is is taking a, is taking a minute why because she gets the benefit of georgia law having one of the most expansive rico statutes on its books anywhere in the country every state has a rico a version of the federal rico statute on their books to handle enterprise crime organizational crime a crime involving two or more acts two or more people in a coordinated strategy to accomplish a criminal objective. Every state's got that. But every state and its legislature, it depends on how broad and expansive it is. And Georgia's got one of the broadest. For instance, under Georgia law, let's just look at the underlying claims. (coughs) Pardon me. Mishandling of government documents is uh, I'm sorry that was I was doing my federal my federal lineup. Let me get let me get my Bonnie Willis lineup. See what happens on live TV. Um, the statutes that she's looking at is criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, state crime, Georgia. False statements to state and local officials, state crime, Georgia. Conspiracy, state crime, racketeering. We'll talk about and threats to the to election administrators. Now, how does she tie all these people together? Mark Meadows, Donald Trump, Lindsey Graham, Powell, Giuliani, and others, fake electors, the Republican Party of Georgia. How does she put all that together? She does it through a RICO indictment. And RICO indictment there is just requiring two criminal acts. And Georgia says it could be federal or state criminal acts, so it's very expansive. A pattern, right, for a, to achieve a common purpose. Um, and so she's got all of that. And now there's new reporting that she's not just looking at what happened on on the dirt in Georgia. She's looking at what happened in five other states to tie it back as a master scheme to interfere with the election and the election, particularly in Georgia, because she's right. It wasn't just Georgia that they wanted. Okay, that wasn't the only um, place that they were focused. They were looking at Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and Georgia. That was the strategy. And each one of those things, you know, it's one of these, uh, like an, an Avenger movie. They had to get all five or six of these jewels in order for something bad to happen and to destroy the world. And Georgia was one part of it. So if that's one part of it, the fact that these other bad acts happened around the country 
all under the auspices of the same group of racketeers, she can then expand her investigation into those areas. And we know now, based on what you and I have done in reporting on Legal AF just two months ago, less than two months ago, she is focused now, as is Jack Smith. This is where there's competing prosecutors fighting over the same evidence, so to speak, on those two outside vendors, consultants that Donald Trump hired, not one, but two, Simpatico Software uh, and Berkeley Research that he hired to try to get to the bottom of all of his working theories about dead people voting, sorry, um, vote flipping by software from Trump to Biden, um, other fraud at the polling places. Well, he paid uh, over a million dollars to both of these entities, and they both reported back uh, Simpatico reported back to the Trump campaign and Berkeley reported back to Mark Meadows and Donald Trump himself in the White House that there, there was no fraud. We couldn't find any fraud. None of your theories work. The people you said go, go talk to, that they either didn't know what they were talking about or had no evidence to support it. The technology thing, we looked at it. And that's on top of cyber ninjas in Arizona who also got paid by the Republicans there and said there was no fraud. So she wants to see that and how it also impacted Georgia. So she's focused on that. How do we know that she's focused on RICO? Because that's like her middle name. She has used RICO more than any other prosecutor in her position in Fulton County combined. She also has on her bench a leading RICO expert as one of her prosecutors. We've talked about him before. She's got Joe uh, sorry, John Floyd, who is an, a RICO expert. She hired him before what happened um, for the election issue. But she he's an in-house consultant on all things RICO. And she's used it successfully in other criminal schemes in very creative ways. And she's going to use it here. Now, what's the advantage of the prosecutor? It's, it sounds great. We keep talking about RICO. What's the advantage? It's easier for her to prove her case. It's easier for her to piece together far flung what seems to be maybe not connected things all in one criminal conspiracy. It also gives her the ability, unlike some other indictments, to write an entire description of the conspiracy, which she's going to do at the top of her indictment in prose, in narrative about the players, the acts, the state court, the state violations, the federal violations, the out-of-state violations, and connect the dots and bring them all home to Georgia in one big, fat conspiracy. It allows her to synthesize all of the evidence and all of the multiple targets and participants in the conspiracy. And some of them can be unindicted, just so people know. She doesn't have to, other than Trump, which we know she's going to indict. I mean, I'm not going out on too far of a limb here. Even Trump's people think that's going to happen. But the others, like, is she going to indict Lindsey Graham? It doesn't matter. He can be what's called an unindicted co-conspirator for a RICO scheme. He could even be unnamed. They could even give him a number. We'll figure it out in about 10 seconds who it is. You know, unindicted co-conspirator number one sitting in Washington in his offices in the Senate making phone calls. I wonder who that is. But that's okay. We care about the description of the scheme, of course. We care about the in, the indicted people, but she can have unindicted co-conspirators, and she will. So that's why 
Georgia prosecutors like that having that in their toolbox because, as I've said in the past, Trump is also between two major bodies of law that are not favorable to him, one in New York and one in Georgia. In New York, the attorney general has probably the most powerful set of civil fraud powers at her discretion of any other attorney general in the state, in, in, in the 50 states. And he's up against that in the civil fraud case. And in Georgia, he's not only got a prosecutor who's amazingly competent and focused on him, rightly so, but at her disposal, probably the most powerful set of racketeering laws of any local prosecutor in the state. In, in any I think instance. when I, I think when people see the indictment out of Fulton County, Georgia, people are going to say, "Wow!" Because my expectation of that indictment is that Phony Willis is going to throw the full book at Donald Trump and his other co-conspirators, and then she's going to pile on some other books after that. She's not messing around, and that one, um, you know, stay tuned. And again, the timeline of these things, you know, and 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 I see sometimes the comments, you know, on on YouTube and and, and in other areas, it's like, you know, you know, y'all have been saying that indictments are coming. Let, let's let's make them happen already. But if you go back to the episodes, the legal efforts who have been with us from day one, know that we've actually. Think set out a fairly accurate timeline with respect to all of these prosecutions. I think we nailed it when it came to the Manhattan District Attorney. I think we are nailing it when it comes to Special Counsel Jack Smith. I think we've been saying almost for the past nine months when no one else was saying it, that we thought that by this summer is when we would see the first indications that there would be a charging decision, that there would be um, an indictment in Special Counsel Jack Smith. And we've been talking about you know that June, July, August timeframe. And so, you know, look, whether it gets moved back a month or two months from a target date, that's just the fluidity of the law, right? And so when it comes to Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis, the explanation for why it's probably moved back, I would say about 60 days from our target date is a good thing for justice. You know, I, I I always like when clients would come into my office in Popak, you may have a similar experience, and they want you to set out the case step by step by step, though, as though these dates are set in stone. Um, and it is important to always remind the client that I won't want to keep certain dates set in stone if it is in your interest. If we say we're going to file on this date, but then we get a lot more information and we speak to new witnesses. Why would you want to file prematurely early? Well, let's get the better insight and information. And so to your point, there's been a lot of developments in the Fulton County District Attorney's case that has pushed this back about 60 days that has been gathering more evidence, that has been speaking to more of these fake electors who are now flipping. That is that is compiling a broader scope of this. All of those things bode well for justice, and the time frame is, to me, second to justice being served. And finally, speaking about justice being served, 
can't be illegal AF without giving you a final update on what's been going on with George Santos. George Santos, of course, was indicted by the Department of Justice last month out of the Eastern District of New York. Few updates to report here. You know, one of the things we learned when he was uh, criminally indicted for all of these false statements that he's been making on his uh, congressional, that he's been representing to Congress and uh, getting money from unemployment insurance that he shouldn't have received, wire fraud. Um, He got bailed out, $500,000. He didn't pay for it out of his own pocket. There was a group of individuals who paid the $500,000 to bail him out. Otherwise, he'd still be in custody. But those identities are secret. They remain secret. Uh, it was The deal was done under seal. And I don't think the deal should be under seal. This is information that we, the people, deserve to have. He's a member of the House of Representatives, which he disgraces each and every day. He works for us. He works for us. And the kind of sureties, the surety bond that's posted to uh, to post the bail for him. That's not like some secret, super secret information. Um, and so fortunately, a number of media entities filed a motion to disclose the identity under the First Amendment. New York Times, ABC, Washington Post, and several others filed the motion. The magistrate judge in the case, Magistrate Judge Ann Y. Shields, set an order for George Santos and his lawyers to respond about why this should still be kept secret. The deadline was June 2nd. On June 2nd, George Santos's lawyers sent this bizarre letter brief to the court and basically said that it's taking them a lot of time to find cases that will help them distinguish these very, the, there's so much gravity in this matter that they have to spend more time in the weekend to search for uh, case law that could help them keep this information secret. I mean, the judge was like, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you one more business day, okay? <laughs> okay, like I'll give you until Monday. So uh, the judge granted an extension of time for George Santos's lawyer, I guess, to spend the weekend trying to search for cases that support their position. I'll, I'll, I'll give them the hint here, there aren't any. This should not be kept secret. This is precisely the type of information that should be public, really. In a case involving a fraudulent, lying member of Congress, should we keep the identities of the shooters a secret? Absolutely not. Um, but we will see what the, uh, the the what the briefing is that's filed by George Santos. But I expect to get the identity of those individuals, which will be fascinating indeed, Popak. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I mean, the, just to be clear for those, so we don't skip any any steps. The prosecutors know the names; they were provided to them because the prosecutors have to vet collateral and money that's being put up to make sure it's not a continuation of a crime. I've been involved with a number of cases where the government has come back and said, where's that money coming from? What's the source of that money? And have challenged you know, where the bond and bail is coming from, if it's coming from a potential criminal source or, or a back channel, like, oh, it's an LLC off the Cayman Islands. Like, no, <laughs> we're not allowing that. Tell us more. This is about the public disclosure. And we just had a recent very high profile version of of exactly 
the way I think it's going to play out and, and right to where Ben, you, you also predicted, which is we're going to learn the names. Sam Bankman Freed in the FTX matter and the collapse of FTX did not want the world to know that three professors at Stanford that worked with his parents, who were also Stanford professors, and that were at one time mentors to Sam Bankman Freed, had put up their houses and half a million dollars worth of collateral. And he, you know, I don't know if that was the condition of them giving it, that they would try to keep it secret, but you know, they didn't want to be there, they're still on faculty at Stanford. And there was uh, the same motion practice that we're doing here and reply briefs and everything. And at, the, and, at the, and at the end, in response to the media's inquiry, the judge says, Yeah, I'm disclosing that. So it's gonna come out. Now, if he if the reason he doesn't want it out, this is a guy where that based on new reporting, he's lied about who his treasurer was. He never really had a treasurer because the press reached out to the treasurer and she said, huh, I'm not the treasurer of what? Um, you know, when, when you're being charged for financial crime, impersonating other people, uh, identity fraud and things like that, you don't get the benefit of a cover. I guess his argument is what, Ben? It's that it's all it's a political witch hunt, and my donors have the right to support me, and but they shouldn't be outed. You, your donors are outed all the time. Uh, it, this is his problem with not understanding federal election law. Your donors are always outed. I make a donation of a thousand dollars to a candidate. Judge Mershon makes a donation for thirty dollars to Joe Biden. It's reported. In a, in, and you can get access to it. Why should we not? So, so I don't even know what what is the best straight faced argument that he makes, Ben. Let me just I hear one the, more. Time. I think the best straight faced argument was to temporarily keep it sealed by saying that there's a privacy concern for these individuals, oh. and as part of negotiating his surrender, he basically says, "Look, I'm going to show up at this date voluntarily." These people want to be kept private. Uh, it's all happening fairly quickly. So I think the Department of Justice ultimately is like, they don't care one way or the other. Um, uh, I got a prediction of who it is. I, I got a prediction I, I, of who I, it is. I, I want to hear you. I want to hear a prediction. But <laughs> I think what I think what the um, what the argument will be, which is a losing argument, is going to be kind of play the victim and saying yeah. because he's exposed to threats and all of these things for his conduct by bringing other people in, they'd be exposed to threats and harassment. You know, but that's just clearly not the case. And the bottom line is that if they are going to step into an arena, a public arena, a courthouse, that no one forced them to step into this arena. They on their own said, we are standing shoulder to shoulder with a traitor and a complete fraud. Take your prediction of who it is. All right. I, this is just spitballing here. Um, but the people that were very close to him, including the ones that were, you know, he made a lot of money off of a yacht brokerage where he sold a yacht for a Miami Republican fundraiser and reasonably well-known person. I'm not going to name them here, but if you if you Google things, you'll figure it out. Um, and, and that person's wife was a big supporter of his campaign. They also sold that boat through him to another supporter in Long Island, and he got paid a large finder's fee commission to that Devalder entity of his, which is what gave him enough money to ultimately loan his campaign money. I'm, I have no reason to believe they're no longer supporting him, pardon me, and standing behind him. And I would not be shocked when they finally rip off the curtain 
to see that Miami family being one of the families that helped support him for the bail and the bond. We will see, and we will keep you posted here on Legal AF, another incredible episode. I have so much fun spending this time with you, Michael Popak, with all of the Legal AFers out there. And I see the Legal AFers go, I never thought of myself as an AFer before. Yeah, you're a Legal AFer. That's the community. We're, 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 we're all in it together. So whether you're a Midas Mighty, a Legal AFer, a a political beatdown brigader, a lights on luminary. I think we'll come up with names for, for all of the rest. It's one community pro-democracy. We focus on the facts. We try to do this with intelligence, compassion, inject humanity back into this, but to really spend our time working through these issues and, and talking about them and, and, and having a serious debate and discussion, which I don't think really exists in many other places. And it is so critical that we bring that back together as a major part of what the media does. And none of this is possible without you who are watching this, you who are listening to this, you are the key to this pro-democracy community. Please share and spread the word about this show and all of the other Midas Touch Network shows. Hit subscribe on the YouTube channel. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers, which I hope we can hit by the end of this summer. Also, if you just watch on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to Legal AF wherever audio podcasts are available. If you listen on audio podcasts only, make sure you subscribe to the Midas Touch YouTube channel just by searching Midas Touch. Check out store.midastouch.com for the best pro-democracy gear, including the official Legal AF merch and other great Midas Touch merch, including the Convict or Convict 45 shirts. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. On our Patreon, the Midas Touch uh, brothers, me, Brett, Jordy, will be uh, holding a live Zoom meeting with all of the Patron members who want to take part in that next week. We'll have that announcement up on our Patreon. You can meet us on Zoom, ask us questions, um, and we'll spend some time doing that next week. And again, thank you everybody out there. It's going to be a very, very, very busy summer, but busy in a way that is good for justice. Have a great rest of the weekend. Have a great week. And we'll see you next time on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. <laughs>